I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and this is a very special retrospective episode of Where We Go Next. At the end of the first 45 episodes of this show, I asked each guest the same final question. This podcast has grown a lot since then, and it has expanded into a much wider variety of topics. But I do sometimes miss asking that final question, and I thought it would be nice to preserve it here for posterity. Some of the answers I received were surprising. Some were enlightening, and all of them were unique. Here are all 45, back to back. So let's begin with that very question I asked each guest. And perhaps you'll think about how you'd answer it too. As individuals, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people, all the time. It's impossible. So, is there someone, or a group of people, in your life or in the world at large right now, that you'd like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Episode 1, National Ambassador for Braver Angels, John Wood Jr. That is a, that is a, great, a great question. <laughs> this is going to sound like a bit of a joking uh, response, but you know, I'm a, I'm a father. I have uh, three young kids, uh, nine, five, and uh, uh, three now, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah, and Abigail. And uh, I, I work so much and I'm so consistently kind of like dedicated to sort of just the things I've described uh, to you that I can find my patience running short for for my children. Um, and I can become a bit short-tempered in a way that would make me seem like a bit of a hypocrite to people who listen to me talk about the need to be patient and empathetic with everybody else. But it makes me think that in addition to my own children, um, you know, having, having empathy for uh, the children, you know, adolescents uh, uh, in, you know, in this country, they're growing up in a very strange time, not just because of the social turmoils we're seeing, but because of the way in which uh, technology is framing sort of the landscape of their reality. And even though it's easy to poke fun at some of the ideological excesses that you see coming from young people, maybe stoked by some of their elders and, you know, <laughs> the academy or entertainment or wherever else, but um, there is you know, nevertheless, I think a strong urge towards uh, reclaiming uh, a life of meaning, you know, uh, that is expressing itself in, in social activism and whatnot, um, that speaks well of, you know, this younger generation and speaks well of something in the heart of America. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I look at my kids and I know that they're going to want to find meaning in their own lives too and so for me being patient with uh, them now is the only way i can kind of be a good guide uh to them you know and so not looking at the young people in our society as like obstacles to what it is we want to do but you know young people are always going to be misguided in one way or the other just like old people are for that matter but you know being willing to look at uh you know even your most wild-eyed like young activists and so forth, your niece, your nephew, or whatever, as still being, you know, somebody who is capable of growing, capable of maturing, and ultimately kind of, you know, leading a a beautifully renewed nation. Uh, you know, that's that's something that we 
we want to master the empathy that can allow us to see them uh, in that way. And so, uh, you know, your question took me a little bit by surprise, but that's, that's my honest answer. Episode two, journalist said Jelani. Yeah, I mean, I think that I always try to understand, like, you know, why people feel so, I think particularly people who feel very intensely about politics, sometimes I, I, I start to see it as like fanaticism or something like that. But I, you know, I, I, I have to, you have to recognize one thing, which is that I think for a lot of people, politics has become a substitute for a religious type of feeling or a familial type of feeling or a communal type of feeling to where, you know, when I see someone and I think that they are just way too into this, you know, maybe their entire identity has become, you know, opposing Donald Trump or uh, entire identity has become some form of partisan identity or ideological identity. I have to, you know, I always have to remember that sometimes people are doing this because there's some need that's not being fulfilled for them. Like, you know, in Portland, there have been people who have been protesting and some people have been rioting for 80 days. And, you know, I talked to someone the other day who had been reported from there and they, they explained a little bit of it to me. And it does seem like a lot of people are doing this because, you know, there's a lockdown, there's COVID-19, they are not allowed to do anything else. They can't go to a concert. They can't go out and hang out with their friends at a club or anything. This is the only thing they can do. And I think for a lot of people, they're just trying to find some meaning in their life by doing this. Even if I find a lot of it to be quite, you know, uh, destructive or undesirable or immature, I have to understand that there's a reason they're doing it. Everyone who's doing something has a reason for doing it. And so it may be misguided. It may ultimately be relying too much. It may ultimately be relying too much on their blind, you know, not seeing their blind spots and so on and so forth, but they have a reason for doing what they're doing. So in general, I think, you know, I tend to have a lot of distaste for people who are political ideologues, but sometimes having the ideology, trying to make sense of the world and having your group or your tribe uh, is, the, is, is a way for you to kind of cope with the, the fact that you're, you, otherwise you'd be very, very alienated. So in general, I think that would be the group of people, you know, I try to, to reconsider. So, Episode 3, Broadcast Journalist, Anaya Fullerin Aman. I guess, you know, I, I, the people that I feel really empathetic to is, is, I guess, the, not just the woke, but the kind of young people involved in wokeness. I've kind of I have written about this a little bit. I think, um, yeah, I think um, we do have a crisis of meaning, you know, an increase in social atomization, um, the massive changes in kind of the labor market and economic, which have increased people's kind of precariousness um, in work. And I think there are a lot of things, yeah, in, about our society that are making people feel that um, there's something not right. Um, And I think, um, yeah, wokeness essentially provides a sense of certainty, um, meaning, purpose, um, and fulfills that kind of idealistic as well as rebellious instincts, particularly kind of rebelling against older generations. And I think, yeah, I think um, that particular identity politics worldview can be very comforting. I think many people, James Lindsay, John McWhorter, describe it as a religion. You know, it's got many of those traits. Um, And I think... um, yeah, I, I offer sympathy because I, I, I see, I get it, you know, regardless of race, I get that kind of, that desire to realise a better society um, and and the sense that, you know, there isn't many people at least advocating for a kind of better society in a more profound way. And so, I, yeah, I, I offer um, empathy to that sentiment. My only uh, response, though, however, is that, um, yeah, think about, 
whether or not this is the way to to, to realize those um, those sentiments within you. Do do you feel that you can speak freely? Do you th- how do you, how how are people that disagree or criticize are treated? And um, these are the kinds of questions that. I guess at least help me think about whether or not I, I align or, or agree with a particular ideological worldview. Uh, and, and so, and I think there are ways to realize those feelings of a desire um, without going down this route. And I think as we spoke about today, you know, the enlightenment, um, universalist and, and kind of humanist ideals and, and liberalism to classical liberalism to an extent also are, are ways to affirm and, 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 um, satisfy those sentiments that I think um, the woke worldview um, is filling in some people. Episode four, writer and professor Wilfred Riley. Offer more empathy too. I mean, I I suppose in some broad sense, I mean, I apologize to everyone I've hurt at some point in my life. I mean, I've had an interesting and varied life and am uh, an imperfect, hyper-competitive, et cetera, person. But uh, no, not other than that statement about people I may have personally hurt. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not actually a huge fan of empathy as opposed to caritas or kindness in politics. I mean, I think what I'd like to offer people as a writer and later on in life as a leader is not so much you know fellow feeling, but solutions that work. Um, my reaction to, for example, black or southern white kids um, posting lower SAT scores than um, white or Northern kids, which we discussed earlier is to some extent feeling a bit badly about this, but to a greater extent, wanting to give them the training to do better on the test. So no, I, I I can't think of too many groups that I just want to extend more empathy toward. Um, as I said, individuals I've, I've hurt myself, soldiers maybe, but no, I, I, I don't really have a long list of people that I feel I need to be more empathic toward. Um, I tend to feel that what I owe other people is nonviolence, and I regret on occasions when I haven't delivered that, but I don't necessarily, I, I can't think of too many people I want to do a great deal more for right now. Feel free to suggest some if you have a favorite charity or something. Episode 5, Professor and Researcher, Roderick Graham. Native Americans. Women, qu- the queer community, and now uh, uh, Black Americans are soaking up all of the um, media time. Meanwhile, you've got uh, Native Americans on reservations who are, uh, the kids are have probably the highest suicide rates. I'm sure that the adults have the highest alcoholism and the poverty rates are the highest. The high school graduation rates are the lowest and we rarely talk about them. I don't know why that is actually. I mean, the only time I hear about Native Americans is when maybe there's a pipeline going through their reservation and, and they're protesting. But outside of that, there are some issues that need to be need to be dealt with. Episode six, director of the Narratives Project, Sean Kamak. Oh, you know, what a question. Good lordy lord. More empathy too. So those kinds of questions can be tricky because if I say just the people with whom I disagree, you'll be able to figure out whom I agree with. Because my strategy, you know, I'm kind of a, obviously through this conversation, you can tell that I'm a bit of a localist. I think people best live their lives locally and governments should be modeled on top of of that. What I see is a pretty self-evident fact. And I think that empathy, there's a lot of empathy is a tricky thing, right? Because there's a lot of um, cognitive cost in trying to go out and and feel something for someone else. 
which is at least that's how the way that I think of empathy. But maybe what I want to have is a little bit more like respect for those with whom I disagree with and may even dislike. That's maybe what I would want to offer to people. And maybe that is something like empathy and and maybe it's not. And here's the group, actually. Yeah, it just came to me. And it's funny, this is actually a group that I do have some affinity for, radicals. I really, really like radicals, far-right radicals and far-left radicals. I, I really, really like them. I find them very interesting people. They're on the fringes of society. They're a little weird and a little wild. And I think they are often hated <laughs> by by the more moderate center insofar as we have one and their own respective moderate sides. But I think there's a great deal of utility for all of us to not disregard radicals, be, again, be they far right or far left radicals, and to kind of listen to what they're saying. Because for one reason is that, hey, some ideas we take as self-evident today were once radical. That's a pretty obvious fact. So maybe these, some of these radical ideas might be useful to us. But also, they sort of give you a little bit of context of like the range of human perspectives. You know, if you've never spoken face to face to an anarcho communist, let's say, you don't really know what they're all about and what they're like, and that there's a there's that kind of person. And and I have a number of times. Or if you haven't spoken to a a far right like whatever neo neo monarchist, let's say, as I have, I've, I've spoken to those folks. You won't know that there is that kind of flavor of of humans living in America today. Now, I guess not everybody needs to go out and make friends with radicals. You don't have to do that at all because there's a lot of cost to that too. But those are the group of people that I think get a, a lot of crap on a daily basis and are just rejected from the discourse. And I think that, you know, I'm a, I am a disgustingly big umbrella kind of pluralist. I am probably more for what people think of as diversity than anyone on the left and anyone on the right. I'm a hardcore pluralist. And I think there's room enough in our discourse at the very least for people with drastically different viewpoints to come together to at least discuss. We don't have to go bowling, but maybe we can have a chat first. Episode seven, writer and musician, Angel Eduardo. <laughs> this might this might be upsetting to people, but uh, I've been thinking about this in the last 48 hours. Um, I have a lot of compassion for Donald Trump, and I feel that everyone else should too. I should clarify that, I guess, but I, I find it very difficult to think of a more odious human being. He is not someone that I like. He is not someone that I... He's not someone who has very many qualities that I would aspire to or admire. He is pretty objectively terrible in many, many ways. But I feel a deep sense of compassion for him and for people like him, for people who, people who like him also. And that comes from just a basic understanding for me of how we come to be in this world. I mean, Donald J. Trump was once a baby. And that baby was born into a world where he didn't pick his genes, he didn't pick his psychology, he didn't pick his brain, he didn't pick his parents, he didn't pick the environment in which he was brought up, he was raised, he didn't pick his education, he didn't pick the temperament that would allow him to absorb an education, whether it did or it didn't. 
And so he is the result of a chain of causes that are outside of his control, just like all of us are. And in so many ways, he is profoundly unlucky to be who he is. I mean, I wouldn't trade lives with him even you know before the last two days when he was diagnosed with COVID, I wouldn't have traded lives with him for anything because it seems like such a miserable existence. You know, his just his narcissism, his his obvious neediness, his need for attention. There must be this just black hole in his belly. And it must be awful. I, I feel terrible for him in that way. I do not wish ill upon him. I have a deep sense of compassion for him because in, in a sense, I recognize that he is just a victim of circumstances, you know, and even his decisions aren't really his decision because the decisions that occur to him to decide just kind of appear in his brain and it's just his programming, you know, um, and that can sound kind of, that can sound kind of bad defeatist for people. It could sound kind of fatalist, um, but I don't see it that way. It just kind of eliminates for me the justification for and, and reasoning behind hating anybody. I don't hate him. I, I really don't like him. <laughs> and I don't like his behavior. I don't like things he says. I don't like the things he does. But hating him just kind of implies that he could be, he could wake up tomorrow and be someone else. And I just know that that's not true. And, you know, now, you know, he's, he's sick and we don't know exactly what his state is. And it could be much, much worse than they're letting on. And, you know, I, I don't wish death upon anyone. I certainly didn't vote for him and would not vote for him. But as a human being, he is suffering and I can feel that. And that might be hard for some people, which I, I understand, but I, I would appeal to everyone's better angels, if you'll pardon the pun, to kind of see that in themselves. You know, I mean, here, here I am, I'm, I'm an atheist telling people to love your enemies, but it's because that principle, that fundamental principle is so important. And, you know, if you can feel compassion for him, then I think you're in a pretty good place. If you can do that, you'll be much more likely to be more compassionate with, you know, the guy who cuts you off in traffic. Episode eight, writer and YouTube host, Brittany Talissa King. I would say the, the black kids who are struggling with their identity, especially the ones that are living in a white community who are constantly told because they're bookish or they love to read, they love to write, they're interested in their studies, that they're white. And because of this, they feel like they have to dim their light or so-called dumb themselves down in order to fit in to what society is saying is black. And I want to tell them that being bookish and being an intellectual is black. And there's nothing wrong with you having this interest in wanting to learn. And I would just want them to be encouraged to know what they're doing is not wrong and society's wrong. And if anything, history within society is pissed off that you're not following suit to being an inferior being and need to push back and just read more and write more. Episode nine, writer and researcher, Rob Henderson. I, 
Oh, let me think here. I mean, like something that jumps to mind, and I don't know if this is exactly linked to what we've been talking about. I mean, like, so, so one group of people, sure, like people who maybe disagree with me. I get it. Like, there, I, I've had people who who sort of think that I focus too much on the family and should focus on other things, and I think that some of those criticisms are are totally valid. Another group who I I you know it's hard to know who to have empathy for because it hasn't happened yet, but. I'm kind of worried what's going to happen in the aftermath of this upcoming election. What is it in two days or whatever this Tuesday? And so whichever side doesn't get the outcome that they want, I I will, yeah, just feel empathy for whichever side. And I hope that we can find a way to, to sort of get past whatever sort of disagreements that we have. I think that political polarization is something that I've, you know, I've studied it. I've very concerned about, about what's been happening. We've touched on it a little bit in this discussion about sort of left and right and disagreements, but it seems to be getting worse and worse. And I hope like whatever happens in the election and whatever happens, you know, just sort of, we can find a way to, to calm down and drain some of the, the anger out of these political disputes. Episode 10, Higher Ground Education's Vice President of Pedagogy, Matt Bateman, and CEO, Ray Gern. I knew you were going to ask this question because I listened to some of your podcasts, so I thought about it. I don't know if this counts as a group of people or not, but I think that there, there's multiple ways in which I think that the answer is children. Kind of having, and everybody loves kids. Like I walk up, I have an eight month old daughter, and I live in New York, and I've been walking around. Um, New York, pushing her around in the stroller, and everybody smiles at her, and it's it's one of these really delightful experiences to have. But I mean, really seeing where they're coming from, what they can and can't understand. I mean, maybe this is a topic for a future conversation as well. But a lot of illiberalism, a lot of incapacity to think about certain topics or to empathize with others stems from things that children absorb from the adults around them in childhood, even from really good intentions, and really respecting a child's context, what they do and don't understand, what they're ready to understand and what they're ready to not understand, where they're at in their development of their identity. There's no limit to the dividends that get paid by empathizing with children. For me, um, what really comes to mind, I think, is the educational establishment. I'm a critic of that establishment. You know, I've gone to conferences and, you know, we talked about mixed-age classrooms and especially with respect to educational advocacy, you know, I've really said that anyone that's in advocacy that is not pushing for mixed ages, you know, is playing a game and not really serious because the, the data here is so, you know, incontrovertible. As someone that a critic and, and kind of in is often poking holes in the kind of the way things have been done, I have to remind myself, and I do remind myself that that you know teachers, teachers unions, like you know, they're full of good people that love kids that are just trying to do their best. And kind of my, um, you know, my place that I return to to reorient myself is the conviction that it is ideas that move the world, and that people in grips are, are in grips of ideas and intellectual frameworks, and that if you don't really kind of take that view, you end up becoming you know, cynical, you end up, you know, if you believe that hypocrisy, you know, is a force in human history, right? Or like, well, the things that drive us one direction or another are not really at the level of ideas, but at the level of personalities. 
you do, I think, end up seeing the person that's opposing you as, in a sense, the enemy or as the, as the person that you have to topple. Whereas if you go to kind of like, you know, what ideas explain this? Like what intellectual errors explain this view? You just end up having a charitable and much more empathetic view of people who you disagree with just because like, you know, we're all trying to figure it out. And I think that, you know, not that everyone is good intention, but most people are. And I have to do some work and I try, try to do so regularly to remind myself of that because I have just such skepticism of, of the current conventional educational system, public and private, and, and the ways in which it's, uh, I think, not meeting the needs of children, you know, that, that I think um, deserve a lot better. Episode 11, writer and speaker, Alexandra Hudson. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful question because it's a reminder that empathy starts at home and it starts in the small ways. And offline, you and I had exchanged about an essay I wrote about Aristotelian habit making and the importance of, of creating habits that are pro-human and pro-dignity. And even if that means being respectful to technology and, and <laughs> you know, shouting at Alexa can form a bad habit of, of us making decisions like, oh, is this a human or a person or a dog or, or, or technology like and, and deciding who, who and what we're respectful to can be can be a habit that in the long term can be counterproductive and harmful. And so the habit of empathy and sympathy is something that we can cultivate in our everyday. My husband and I welcomed our son into the world back in March, right as the world shut down, March 12th is his birthday. He just turned eight months old. And, you know, seeing the world through his eyes is the fundamental lesson in empathy, where it's like just the wonder and the curiosity and just um, the beauty and the innocence. And it looking at that, it does give me hope when when looking out at the world today can breed a lot of resentment and cynicism and trying to nourish that that disposition is really something I've that has has been nourishing to, to me and I, I love thinking about this metaphor of cultivating our own gardens you know just just making those practices part of our daily lives so that when we are tested when we are confronted with people that we don't like we we have that inner reserve of empathy and graciousness that we've been building up during this time of empathy building and, and training. So yeah, thank you for that question. Episode 12, fashion stylist and cultural commentator, Aisha Akambi. This is probably a really random one, but I guess it's something that's quite close to my heart. So in Nigeria, there are a lot of young people from as young as, you know, seven sometimes who work as what are called houseboys and housegirls. Essentially, these are servants, and they can be treated in all kinds of awful ways. And that situation, and it's a very common practice all over Nigeria to have, sorry, they're not always young, sometimes they're of age, but often they're not too. And, you know, they get treated terribly. It's almost like a form of slavery. And so um, I would like to offer empathy to anybody in that situation. It, people in that situation are individuals that I think about a lot for some reason. So yeah, I think today I'm going to extend my empathy over to anyone in a situation like that. Episode 13, Nuclear Engineer, Nick Turan. To keep it topical, I, I would like to offer empathy to anti-nuclear activists of today and of the past. I think in general, 
they're very well-meaning people who are trying to protect the world and, and establish an identity in a way that can, you know, be towards something they really believe in. And they've, for various reasons, decided that nuclear technology is what they want to be fighting against. This has certainly caused plenty of problems for um, the effort that I've been trying to do, which is, of course, you know, climate change with nuclear technology. But I do feel like trying to bridge that gap would be really interesting and sort of establish a common understanding. I mean, the environmentalist nuclear technologist is pretty common these days. A lot of people like me got into it because we wanted to help climate change. And so I think it'd be nice if maybe pro-nuclear people like me could actively express more empathy to that basic group of people and see if we can reestablish some trust. We're in it together. Episode 14, Writer Sadaka Huja. Someone I would like to offer empathy to. Uh, it's a very good question. I would like to offer empathy to basically the working class in India that may better or for worse be affected by the policies that come forward and empathy towards the working class and the sort of subaltern of the West, which have been affected negatively by all of these policies and are derided by the people who claim to want to represent them. So I think I empathize with them and I see where they're coming from and I see why they support the policies they support and I see why they need I wouldn't say need the help because I'm not trying to sound like a paternalistic person, but why it is time to listen to them. Episode 15, Geneticist and Cultural Commentator, Razib Khan. You know, <laughs> I, I, I will offer empathy to all the people I have uh, needled and prodded and poked over my lifetime with my heresies and blasphemies because uh, I have issues with empathy and I am way too amused by myself. And what I need to, you know, as I get older, what I need to figure out is put myself in other people's shoes, I guess. You know, I'm a trickster. I enjoy my jokes and I enjoy the absurdity of the world. And yeah, it's, it's fun for me, but sometimes absurdity can cause hurt feelings and I need to realize that that matters. That matters in the world. Episode 16, Theory of Enchantment Founder, Chloe Valdery. Oh, what a great question. <laughs> I would like to offer empathy to Ibram Kendi. I think that... Ibram Kendi experienced a great deal of hardship and persecution and identity challenges vis-a-vis -vis identity growing up, especially if you read like some of the things he experienced that he talks about in his book. And I understand what it's like to experience, I think, a loss of, of groundedness with oneself and how and what it's like to experience a crisis of meaning and what it's like to experience cognitive dissonance and it's really hard it's really all encompassing when it happens and i recognize that this is something that confronts us all as human beings and so despite you know what has come out of that for ibram kendi despite the fact that i disagree with many of its i guess notes many notes on of the song that he's produced i empathize with the tragedy that has been a part of his life. Episode 17, American Conservation Coalition's Vice President of Government Affairs, Quill Robinson. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to offer empathy to all the, the young people, particularly the teenagers who've gotten out on the streets and they've been striking or protesting 
because of climate change, because they're afraid that, you know, they're not going to grow up in a planet that is uh, healthy or livable. And so I want to offer my my empathy to them and understand their their concern and say, I'm, you know, for, for my part, I'm trying my best to, to, to get us closer to those solutions that are going to protect our, our planet and make sure that, that they and their kids and all of our future generations are going to have a, a habitable planet to live on. Episode 18, writer and filmmaker Jay Shapiro. I love this question. <laughs> it's a nice one. It reminds me of a Mr. Rogers thing where he would ask people for like 60 seconds to just think of someone who helped them get to where they're trying to get to. I knew you were going to ask it and I've been thinking about it all week and, I, and I'm not even entirely sure where I'm going to go with it. But I think I'm going to my fiance right now who, and I don't want to like reveal any of the things there, but is dealing with a lot of very heavy family stuff. And I'm sure she's not the only one. And I just admire her. There you go. Thank you for sharing that. I think it can be easy oftentimes because of everything that's going on in the world over the last year or so for us to forget that people are going through a lot. Yeah. I kind of want to give it to everyone in the world right now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's been tough and COVID has been tough. All the stuff that I said at the beginning that might have sound weird about like looking at yourself in the mirror and getting the filters out of the way, my fiance is really good at it. And so I learn a lot from her. And she's patient with me too sometimes when I'm not so good at it. So that's where my empathy goes right now. Episode 19, motivational speaker and author, Rockman Wangozi. Oh, wow. So many people. One, we can just start off with everyone who've really been negatively affected by COVID and the lockdowns. I've been very fortunate to keep my job. I've had to outlay extra resources to help family members and friends stay afloat, but that is a privilege that I've enjoyed. And I understand that not everyone has had that opportunity. So I have a deep well of compassion for the struggles and the anxieties that come with these situations and so I would love to extend the wisdom of my experiences to know that this pain in the moment, it goes away as that old campaign, it gets better when you just put one foot in front of the other and just keep working at it. Life changes when you do things with integrity and honesty and you put your heart in it. It takes time, but the dividends pay out. And so just people really negatively affected by all of this, and that's global. I would like to say to the Uyghurs in China, that's something that percolates across the Twitter feeds. And well, what about China? And what about this and everything like that? And I, I will take this time. I don't know enough about their situation. And I think that's part of a problem. I think this world has experienced far too many genocides and just atrocities that way. And we always say that we're not going to do it again. And then the next time it comes up, we're going to do something about it. And it happens. And then everyone gets paralyzed and forget what it is that they said that they were going to do. And I don't have any answers for the Uyghur situation. And I wish that I did. Because for all intents and purposes, it seems that these people are just living their lives. And they have a government that views them as an enemy and is unbound by any sense of morality or fairness and is using them for its own purposes. And so I wish that there were more conversations about them and more ideas about how we as the global community can help them in their situation, whether it's the Uyghurs or the other dozen or so genocides that are going on right now. 
right? These things are happening all the time. I also want to give a a special consideration, and this may sound weird, to the disaffected Trump voter. I think these last couple of years have been very trying for everyone. And I know that this loss and all the things that have happened seems to be touching on a lot of fear and anxiety with people, particularly, let's say, very specifically, the white working class people. That seems to be the group that, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, but that's a group that feels that no one is listening to them, right? And I want to sort of extend to them the olive branch or the understanding that, not in a condescending way, but welcome to the club. This is how Black people have felt for a long time. This is the impetus behind feminism and women wanting to be heard and more rights and Asians as they are learning to find their voice within our social structures and Hispanics. Welcome to the rest of us. I don't say that condescendingly. I'm saying that with open arms because we all are experiencing the negative effects of marginalization, indifference, stereotyping, various isms. And I think that we all detect something rotten at the core of this country and not just this country, but our culture and how we've designed it and how it doesn't seem to be working for the average of us. And so when I say welcome, I'm saying welcome to the rest of America. Let's all in our Americanness and our sense of fairness see how we can better structure our communities and better structure our societies to uplift ourselves, to take care of those who maybe need a little bit extra help and consideration over these very common things that come up in life. So I want to extend some compassion and consideration to them because it seems that the disaffected Trump voter is feeling a lot of pain and anxiety about what the future will hold. And it's like, it doesn't have to be scary. It will be challenging, but there's opportunity in the challenges. And if you believe in yourself, and if you do things again with integrity and honesty, and if you are surrounding yourself with people, surrounding yourself with people who love you and care about you, and the reason why they love you and care about you is because you love and care about them. If you're surrounding yourself with good people who are trying to do good things, good things tend to happen, not every day, but over the course of things. And so that's what it is. I want people to just find more compassion for themselves by finding it for other people, by finding it for themselves. It's that recursive thing that we're talking about. (laughs) Episode 20, humanistic psychologist and author, Scott Barry Kaufman. I really would like to offer empathy to African-Americans in the United States right now who particularly feel as though they aren't being appreciated or being seen for their full humanity. And it's interesting because I say that genuinely and not, uh, there's a million different motives one can impute on someone who makes a statement like that today, like, uh, oh, you're just being woke or you're uh, pandering to the woke mob or you're doing virtuous virtue signaling, or there's a million different ways to reduce what I just said to some caricature. But I've been on Clubhouse a lot lately, which is an app, and I've been listening a lot to particular experience of a particular group of African Americans in America. And when I hear them and their experiences and how they still don't feel safe in our country, it breaks my heart. 
And I think we need to be listening to each other a lot more. But in particular, I would like to explicitly extend that empathy in a way that I don't see it extended in a lot of my intellectual circles that I swim in these days. Episode 21, Executive Director of Rights Behind Bars, Samuel Weiss. That's a good question. I do have, I think, a predisposition towards empathy. That sounds self-aggrandizing, but I I don't mean it to. I I think sometimes it's negative. I see the other side of things that are really one-sided. I sympathize with people who maybe would benefit more from a harsher reaction for me instead of sympathy. But that has driven me into this work is the idea that it's not hard for me to work on behalf of people who have made really serious mistakes, but are being treated inhumanely. I don't have to overcome any cognitive dissonance. I I think that's just the way that I'm wired. But one thing that I would say, I guess, and this, this has come up several times, it's very easy, I think, to take an us against them attitude when you spend a lot of time in prisons and you see how badly people are abused in the same sort of us against them, ethnocentric sort of attitude that people take against our clients. It's easy to take that on behalf of our clients. So I I would just say that I think that getting as many people safely out of prison as possible, and the small number of those that have to remain, or that do remain being treated as humanely as possible, I think really would be beneficial to the staff of the people who worked there. Even in the same way that some of our clients have made terrible mistakes, some of the staff who have done terrible things to people I care about, my clients, I do think it's a brutal job and one that causes people tremendous stress and suffering. And and obviously, some people are able to do it with incredible grace and humanity, but it's just sort of swimming against the tide to be able to do that. So, I would say, because everything in my job pushes me to go the opposite way, I will say that I offer my empathy to the people who have made mistakes in treating people in prison as inhuman, because I think ultimately it's an action that degrades oneself as much as it does the other person, and it's a consequence of a system that's really set up to work against people and to be in nobody's best interest. So, I'll offer them my empathy. Episode 22, Michaela Community School founder and headmistress, Catherine Burblesing. Oh, I don't know. There's so many different people out there. I mean, my, my staff are very important to me because I'm always the one that's on these podcasts talking. And I, what I really like about this podcast is the way you kept quoting and naming some of my staff from the book, because they're in the classrooms day in, day out. They're the ones working all the time. Uh, I mean, I also work all the time, but, you know, they give so much and they're not on podcasts. They're just quietly changing the world for these children. And they do it without thanks. And in fact, some of their friends stop talking to them because they're young And so they're part of this millennial crowd that are all cool and trendy. And they look at Michaela and they think, how can you work there? Some of them actually lose friendships because of their choice to come and work here. And so they make huge sacrifices for the sake of these children. And I have such huge respect for them, really, that they do that and that they give what they do. And I just wish that people would rethink their judgments of those who are actually doing real good, that putting a black box on Instagram doesn't really do any good for anyone going and working in the inner city day in, day out, and getting there at 6.37 a.m. every day, that's what makes a difference. Episode 23, co-founder and president of Let Grow, 
Lenore Skenazy. I'll tell you one individual that I empathize with, and it's the mom whose kid fell in the gorilla cage in, I think it was Cincinnati about, I don't know, three or four years ago. It was a huge story. Because the child had fallen in, they had to kill the gorilla because they couldn't tranquilize it because it wouldn't get tranquil fast enough. And in the meantime, it could possibly kill the child. And everybody was hating on her and there were memes against her. And, you know, I gorilla memes that said, I'm dead because this bitch didn't watch her child, that kind of thing. And the reason I empathize with is because people are acting as if she should have been completely aware that, of course, children are always falling into the gorilla cage. And of course, there's like barely anything around the gorilla cage. And why weren't you watching your kids like a hawk? And that's the kind of parent judging that's just driving me crazy. Obviously, if she thought that the zoo was dangerous, there would be no children at the zoo, right? If everybody thought that it was easy to tumble into the cages of wild animals. So I empathize with parents who've had something tragic happen and have felt the weight of judgment upon them. Episode 24, Professor of Medicine and Associate Chief in the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine at University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Monica Gandhi. Yes, it is people living with HIV. Even though I'm an infectious disease doctor and infectious disease trained at heart, what got me into infectious disease was HIV. And they are, people living with HIV anywhere are struggling with the persistent feeling of stigma that they experienced at the beginning of the HIV pandemic because we're in, we have another pandemic and we happen to message unsympathetically and unkindly about keeping people away from each other and not kindness about people's loneliness and mental health during this pandemic. And my message is to everyone living with HIV, I'm so sorry that you had to go through more than one thing in a lifetime. No one should have to go through two. And I will do anything in my power to help message that we're getting out of this pandemic so that you can go back to having one thing to worry about and not COVID-19. And I'm sorry for all that you've suffered through this. Episode 25, President and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, Greg Lukianoff. Oh my goodness. Hmm. As far as empathy goes, I do think that we are placing, there are two groups that I feel like really suffer in this whole sort of free speech on campus debate that get no credit. And one big one are people on the spectrum. We have a lot of people show up at fire conferences who are like, listen, there are a lot of rules to how you're supposed to talk at these schools. And to be, again, they're largely, people like to hear this, but they're largely upper class rules about how you're supposed to talk. And I am on the spectrum. I don't get social cues all that well. And I'm constantly saying the wrong thing as far as people are concerned. And I get in trouble sometimes. And the fact that utopian systems never work well with diversity, and this is something that really I would also like your listeners to understand, and that means diversity of all kinds and particularly expressive. You know, the idea that kind of like I don't get the cues and the cues are really important here. I'm going to get in trouble. And we see a lot of cases like this. I also worry a lot and we've seen a lot of cases involving and this is close to home because my father is a refugee and my mother is British by way of Ireland. It's mildly confusing. But the... um is international students. They show up a lot of times being like, wow, there are a lot of landmines here and I don't fully understand all of them. And I'm talking just like I would at home and, oh, wow, I'm getting in trouble. I should probably just talk to people who aren't so easily offended. So I, I do see international students run into problems with this a lot because they don't know what the landmines are for upper class, highly educated in the United States. Of course, my father is Russian. So Russians come and they think, 
Russians oftentimes like to make fun of us for our politeness. My father would say, you know, as a kid, politeness is a form of deception, which is true to a degree. And they think it's absolutely, in some cases, hysterical, like how, how careful we are about what we say when there's sort of like a Russian tradition of being brutally honest and you just have to get over it. So I do think that in this kind of goal to have these kind, compassionate, empathetic cultures, we're actually not being very empathetic to people who are from different national origins from the point of view of neurodiversity. And I get to see and talk to these kids sometimes. And they really, you would like to have friends who have different expressive styles. They're, they're attracted to the idea of having good conversations. And, and it's not just conversations, it's about actual friendship. But we're creating a lot of barriers to people being friends across lines of difference. That leads to group polarization. But also, you know, from the empathy standpoint, also just leads to loneliness and sadness. Episode 26, social media consultant and communication specialist, Sarah Mojarad. That's a really great question. I like that a lot. I think I would want to offer empathy to the people who have been unable to speak about online harassment and just let them know that they're not alone. It can be a very isolating experience. And if you don't know anyone who's gone through it, you can feel like the harassers are right in what they're saying. But I just want people to know that if you're going through online harassment, you don't deserve it. And you are a good person. So hang in there and look for support. Episode 27, LinkedIn's Head of Accessibility Engineering Evangelism, Jenison Asuncion. Wow. I love that question. So for me, I want to give props to every engineer, every designer, every product manager who has gone beyond so that they they have battled and won the battle to make what they've been building accessible. Because it's not, I don't want to give this rosy feeling that everyone's going to be open to accessibility. You've got to sometimes do a big convincing job to make that happen. And some people have gone to great lengths and had really difficult conversations in order to get accessibility, the priority it's gotten. So for anyone who's done that and who has had that difficult conversation, but who has won and ultimately made that product accessible and usable to a wider body group of people, I salute you because I know it's not easy. Episode 28, writer and filmmaker, Jay Shapiro. I was just in Mexico for a while. You know this. I was in Mexico City. Maybe it's why I sound still a little zen out. I'm still like in like, I got a distance from America. So the absurdities of it are helpful to see from slightly afar. I was in Mexico City, sort of just living and working and getting away from the end of winter. And I want to give the reminders of our place in the world. We've talked a lot about sort of America as a place in the world and my experiences traveling and foreign relations and all this stuff. There are a lot of people in this world who are not nearly as lucky as we are. I literally, when I landed in the airport, still on the plane, fired up my phone in North Carolina and made an appointment for my vaccine and got it two days after I was home. My first shot, I'm halfway vaccinated now. And in Mexico, just over our border in Mexico City, where I was, which is beautiful, by the way, if you've never been, they're talking, they have no idea. 
And also the information is pretty crummy there. There's waiters literally wearing goggles and face masks and spraying you with like holy water when you went go to a place. And some of this I'm sure is sort of a social signaling and but some of it is also misinformation. And who knows what that place is gonna look like. But speaking about privilege, and we you know, we've talked about tribalism within America a lot and our racial conversations and problems and histories and all that kind of stuff. We're doing okay as a country. And regardless of our problems or if we're declining or not, which I think we probably are, but it's easy to forget how there are massive groups of people. My friends in Uganda, I could be pointing to here, but I'm just waving a wand right now at all of the people in countries that are not nearly at the pace or scale of economic and infrastructural development as America is in technological development and communication, where they have no idea when they're going to get out of this thing. And they're really genuinely struggling. And that's it. Episode 29, host of the Embrace the Void podcast, Aaron Rabinowitz. You know, I've been doing a lot of trying to continue to maintain and cultivate empathy towards what I would consider the kind of rank and file anti-woke. I think that there is a lot of taking advantage of people's genuine anxieties and bad experiences by the leadership of that particular movement. And I actually, you know, I'm for cultivating empathy for everyone. So I have empathy even for someone like James Lindsay. I imagine it must be awful being inside of his head. But I really want to like help try to encourage people in my world to like, have empathy for the individuals who get sucked into those ways of seeing the world and have them understand that I think a lot of them are coming from a genuine place of they did really have a bad experience or someone did a wokeness towards them in a way that was really bad. Like there's a lot of lazy woke takes that go on out there in the world when it's really unfortunate. And I'm not surprised that it turns people off. So I want to have sympathy for all of the people who are wrestling with conspiracy theories, broadly speaking. I think the past year of everybody being trapped inside has likely wrought a lot of harm in terms of making people more susceptible to a variety of conspiracy theories. And as we work to try to untangle that impact, I think we have to really, really remember those people got there from suffering and bad luck, and we want to help them to find better luck and reduce their suffering. Episode 30, author and investigative journalist, Amanda Ripley. Huh, I love that question. God, there's so many. I have to just choose one. Is that the rule? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've been feeling a lot of frustration lately with a group of people, and it's been making me think that I'm probably not being fair, and it's probably much more complicated than I'm allowing it to be. Just the level of righteousness that I've started to sometimes feel about it makes me a little suspicious. So I would like to be more empathetic towards teachers and teachers unions who don't want to reopen schools, because I find this really heartbreaking for lots of reasons. And it's easy for me to kind of just generalize about this huge group of people, again, who I, most of whom I don't know, (laughs) and will never meet. And to remind myself that there's a lot about the year they've been through that I don't understand. And also about the many years before that, because there's profound distrust in our country between a lot of unions and teachers and management. And that's a big, big problem that predates the pandemic. So I want to have more empathy for them 
And also for journalists would be the other one, because I sometimes feel really frustrated with my profession, that it's not changing to adapt to what the public is telling us. And again, it is easy to say those things when you're not in it. I'm like a freelance reporter and author, and I'm not in it every day. So those are two groups that (laughs) I would like to try to be more humble about and show more empathy for. Episode 31, Molecular Biologist, Dr. Alina Chan. Yes, it's virologists. So the scientists who are in this bind right now are struggling to think whether they've been right all this time, that viruses spill over from nature all the time and we should be on the alert, or maybe that one of their own made a mistake so bad that now millions of people are dead. So I don't think that they should be penalized. What we really need to do is to remove the blame so that we can have a very productive conversation about how to move forward in the future. So I understand the fear that there will be a huge wave of hate coming from the public if this is ever found to be originating from a lab leak. But even in this current moment of uncertainty, I want the public to remember that this was not intentional, right? So this was an accident that no one really predicted. So I have the most sympathy right now for the scientists who are in this bind of whether was it really like a mistake that one of us made and now millions of people are dead. Episode 32, writer and YouTube host, Brittany Talissa King. I think there's a group of people who I know many people in this group, and I say that with heavy quotes, that are the well-meaning people we keep referring to who really just want to do good, just want to be good people. And they've been told, these are the things you need to do to be good. And I feel like because we're human and we have intuition, instincts, like sometimes we know when something's off. But if a majority is saying something, And you know if you go against the majority and you'll be labeled the very thing you're trying to stay far, far away from, you might stay silent because you want to be good. I will say if you really want to champion the voices you say matter, you have to be as honest as you can with yourself by yourself and just be like, logically make sense of what you're reading and thinking and doing. And ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now or what I'm going to do tomorrow or the meetings I'm going to, the conversations I'm having, or the thing I'm trying to implement, is this really going to better race relations with this other group and myself and the group I'm in? And also, is what I'm doing actually championing these lives or am I infantilizing these lives? Like, am I actually making a difference in their life, a fundamental generational difference? Or am I kind of being a coward and doing this thing because it makes me look good at the sacrifice of their progression? And I know that's it, but other people are saying, no, this is the way. And you know, it's not. I know there's people that are just trying to do good when it comes to this racial divide. They're just gotten tangled up in a web and now they're so tangled in it they don't even know where to go what's left or right they don't even know the way out but you have to be honest if you really care about bettering race relations you might have to go 
against your pack if you think what you're doing is actually damaging the people that you're trying to ally for. All because a majority says something doesn't mean that that's right. All because a majority says this is the way to go doesn't mean that it's right. Doesn't mean that is the solution. And if your gut is telling you it, because I know there's people that have that in them, like, because I've had the conversations with people and they've been like, man, that's what I felt. I felt something was off, but I just was told like I had white fragility or I was told I was co-opting or the conversation or I was told this or this, but I was like, no, I care about this community. And I feel like what I'm doing is actually white supremacy in a sense. If you answer that to yourself, honestly, is the best thing you can do for that other group. And if it is the latter, or if you can't even answer it, it probably is the answer you don't want to know. Like you don't want to be honest with. But this country is not going to get better with people denying that voice inside you that's saying this is not right. This is not aligned with logic of an outcome for these people. This is actually down the line going to make things worse. If you care about bettering and being really progressive, you got to ask yourself those questions. And I use the word coward not to say like, Anyone can be a coward. I can be a coward. But it it is being a coward if you know what you're doing on paper is not right. But online, it makes you look good. That's being a coward. Straight up. But the thing is, no one's perfect. So that's the good news. We all are cowards in our own ways on different things. No one has it all together. You're human. You can change anytime you want. But you have to first be honest or you won't ever change. And nothing will ever change. So that is the group I want to talk to. The people that are like, I want to do good. I don't know if this is good. If you feel that, it probably isn't. Episode 33, author and podcast host, Megan Daum. This building has collapsed in Miami, outside of Miami. I mean, this is like a horrible situation. I don't know when this is going to post, so maybe this will be old news by then. I find it like very strange that this is not a bigger news story. There are hundreds of people going to be dead from this. It was a really horrific thing that has happened in Florida with this condo building that has collapsed. There are at least 100 people missing. I would imagine that means they're buried in the rubble. And the story is like kind of getting peripheral coverage for some reason. So I guess like my answer at this moment today would be I would offer empathy for anybody who is directly affected by that situation that feels maybe a little unseen for any number of reasons. It's like it's a really, really massive catastrophe that we don't seem to be talking about for some reason. So, Episode 34, Emergency Medical Physician, Dr. Hassan Gokul. Look, it's right now, it's, I feel truly concerned, worried, and I would love to uh, have an opportunity to have further conversations with those who feel fearful of the vaccination. We're in Texas. Texas has a relatively low immunization rate of the COVID vaccines compared to many of the other places. And it's so easy for, and it happens too much for people with education or, or certain political leanings to vilify the other side. And it's, it's time to actually say, hey, listen, guys, there's reasons why people believe what they do. They have fears. They have uh, things that we're fortunate. We don't have those types of fears and stuff. And, and it is very important for us to make 
bridges through and try and be on the same page rather than uh, just 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 make someone feel down or look down on them for having made certain choices in their lives. And that's really all. Episode 35, Filmmaker Nadia Gill. Mm, that is such a great question. I would like to offer my empathy to anybody who feels like they have something to say out in the world, but no way to say it, that they have a point of view that isn't heard. I think that comes from both sides and it has to do with everything that we're talking about and why we're even fighting over who can tell whose story, because it already originates with this idea that people don't feel they've been heard, right? And they want to be heard and they think that being heard will lead to change. And so my empathy goes to anyone who feels like they haven't been heard. I think that includes unlikely characters who are starting to speak up now, maybe in more subversive ways and feeling the heat. And I think it goes to people who have done the work a lot for a long time and have paved the way for people to speak up. Episode 36, author and founder of the Moral Courage Project, Irshad Manji. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I will. Oh, my dad. My dad, with whom I haven't had a relationship for a very, very long time, and he's getting on in his years. And, you know, I'm going to be flying back to Canada shortly to see my family. My dad is not part of that household. And I was thinking to myself the other day, if I saw him at a family barbecue, for example, would I approach him? And I think for the first time in my life, I'm resolved to make contact with him before too long. And I've already got, intellectually speaking, the empathy to understand that his violence towards his daughters and his wife is the language that he knew how to speak, the only language he knew how to speak. But it's intellectual empathy. I can rationalize it, but I have to go a step further and actually accept, emotionally accept it, accept his reality without excusing his behavior, but accept the culture, the generation, the language that he knew to the exclusion of a more compassionate and reasonable language. So, yeah. I'm surprising myself when I say I want to and need to develop authentic empathy for my father. Episode 37, Criminology Professor and former Baltimore Police Officer, Peter Moskos. You know, I've heard you ask that question to your other guests, and I was like, oh man, I have time to prepare. And then I totally forgot. Unrelated to anything we have spoken about, I would say right now, the people to have empathy for are refugees and asylum seekers from Syria and um, Afghanistan. They need our help and we're not giving it to them. And that's a shame because nobody benefits from not giving them help, not us, not them. I would focus on that. Episode 38, Director of Digital and Storytelling at Braver Angels, Monica Guzman. I want to offer empathy to everyone who feels unseen and misunderstood. I think I've, I've learned a lot about that experience lately. And 
it can happen for so many reasons. Our homeless neighbors in Seattle feeling invisible, like literally walking through the streets, right? Doing things that would seem kind of abnormal and, and strange, perhaps, but nobody, nobody looks at them. No one notices. And I think about people who feel misunderstood in their own family, people who go to the internet as a refuge because no one in their lives can hear them, maybe. And, and maybe they find something there that's not good, but at least it makes them feel like they matter. I want to offer empathy to them too. Everyone who's just like sick and tired of being undercounted because of something in their identity. Oh my Lord. And we've all had, I I shouldn't say we all, but a lot of us can relate to that experience. And even in some some of the smallest ways, you know, being bullied in school or whatever, like there's always something, but there are folks who have that in 10 layers or more, right? Oh man. Just, just that, that experience of feeling alone in a world that is talking all the time, of, of feeling you're shouting into the ether, you don't know how to connect to anything, that's, I want to fix that. <laughs> you know, I, I want to fix that. And no matter, no matter where you have gone on that path, even if you've gone somewhere you, maybe you're not proud of, I, I still have empathy for you. Episode 39. Writer Bertrand Cooper. I mentioned earlier that my mom was, you know, kind of like a new age hippie type individual. And, and she was one of those people who, you know, very early on was, for better or worse, this is a group of people that, you know, likes knowing about every ethnic, not likes knowing about it, but they know, you know, they're watching PETA videos, they're keeping track of the different genocides, um, ethnic cleansings, the different wars that are going on. Um, my whole life, I was always made aware of all this suffering that was happening she didn't tell me necessarily do something about it but it was just like that's what she for some reason she just kept looking at all the suffering that was happening in the world so i just grew up always being aware of all these different places where people were in terrible pain i mean this is this is already the drum that i bang but a big part of i think why i'm drawn to writing about poverty. And I I specifically write about black poverty, but I'm concerned with poverty across the board. My empathy goes to just everyone in the world who doesn't have enough to purchase the basic necessities for life. There's so many people I write about the black poor, but it's, you know, (laughs) there's people all over the world who it's so hard to really wrap your head around poverty, but it's like, yeah, just people who have to choose whether or not to eat or to have a shelter or to have clothes or to have medical care. And the poorer you are, the less you get of those things. And so your life is just degrading. Your body is degrading and you're just dying. I write about the black poor, but there's people all over the world who suffer that. And poverty becomes like this funnel for whatever your society is worse at handling, poverty will funnel those ills right into your life. So yeah, just empathy to all the people um, who aren't black and poor, but are poor that I don't get to formally acknowledge in my writing. Episode 40, writer and political commentator, Andrew Sullivan. Not a group. No. Insofar as I have empathy, it's, it's humans regardless of their group, and generally speaking with humans I know. 
which is where we start from. And empathy requires another human being to empathize with. You can't empathize with an abstraction. So you start from the basics. You start with your friends. You start with their friends. You start with strangers sometimes in your everyday interaction. The Christian view, I think, is that that's what matters, that these abstract goals, although you can, but, but ultimately you'll be judged by how you interact with other humans. Who did you take care of? Who did you listen to? Who did you make way for? Who did you offer a little bit of dignity to? Who did you forgive? That's where it starts and ends. Yes, we can and should change our society in ways that we think can make things a little better. And I think I spend a lot of my life trying to do that. But it's not what's going to, if anything, gets me into heaven. Hmm. It's the way we interact with each other. That's what I get from the Gospels. And politics is, politics is not a field in which that comes easy. It can be, of course, you can develop friendships and all, but that's a different question than political movements. So that's what I would say. Episode 41, Criminology Professor and Former Baltimore Police Officer, Peter Moskos. I'm going to give the same answer as last time because I still believe it. And that is are basically international refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants seeking a better life. In the same way that prisons were invented, let's not forget the nation state was invented and kind of recently. The idea of separating people by arbitrary borders. People are in unfortunate situations, not because of choices they made, but simply because, you know, a war started in their <laughs> village because they're, you know, had to leave because they're afraid of getting killed or just starving. So I think we need a lot more empathy for um, people trying to cross borders for a better life. Episode 42, Lawyer Turned Writer, David Latt. That's a very good question. And knowing that that is the question, I should have actually thought about it more in advance. But Honestly, I would offer empathy to the people who are on the other side of me in this debate. I think that people who do feel genuinely hurt and offended by certain comments, I can understand that. I really appreciate that. And I can understand why those things would be hurtful. And a lot of times when I'm writing, I try to think to myself, well, how would I feel if I had received this message? And I was convinced that this person had a racist intent. It's very hard for us to transcend, again, our own upbringings and backgrounds to overcome our preconceived beliefs or our, our prejudices or our priors. And so, I do try to be empathetic towards people on the other side of this and imagine and think back to situations where I was so offended by something and felt that it was incumbent upon the other person to apologize rather than for me to try and explain it to them. So, I think we all just need to be a little bit more understanding and that will take us pretty far. Episode 43, the founder of Saddle Up and Read, Caitlin Gooch. Hmm. <laughs> My cousin, Janae, I just love her so much. <laughs> she has been through a lot these last couple of years. Her grandparents have passed away and her mother had passed away all within the, the same six month time frame. I just think for anyone, that's a lot to go through in such a short time. And to just see her today and see how much she has grown and how much she has grown as a person is just amazing to watch because she is my role model. And I really look up to her. <laughs> um, and she's doing things and she has her own business. She's an entrepreneur. And just being able to watch her really do that and go for the things that she wants, even though she 
experienced that loss in such a short time. It's just amazing to me. So Janae, I love you so much. I was just with her over the weekend and I talked to her nearly every day. (laughs) So I hope she knows how much I care about her and I appreciate her. Episode 44, writer Tomiwa Owolade. I think the group of people I would like to offer empathy to are those that derive no sense of pleasure from reading novels. Some members of my family don't really enjoy, actually, I'll generalize that, not just novels, but from reading in general. And I don't think my family would mind me saying this, but I think I'm basically the only person in my family that reads for pleasure (laughs) for a host of different reasons. Most of my family don't really read for pleasure at all. In fact, none of them do, I I would say. And I just find that inability to derive pleasure from reading misfortunate because I think the pleasures that I derive from reading, both fiction and also nonfiction now, are so spiritually nourishing and transcendent that I find it completely unfortunate that other people are unable to appreciate it. I think it's almost like blind people not being able to see a magnificent work of visual art, mm. a Caravaggio, or a work by Michelangelo, or deaf people not being able to listen to a piece of music by Bach or Beethoven, even though Beethoven did become deaf later, later in his life. But let's, let's <laughs> skip over that. I think, yeah, I think those analogies reflect my attitude and my my empathy to people that are unable to or are unwilling to derive any any sense of pleasure from reading episode 45 independent news videographer ford fisher i've struggled with the fact that the media hasn't reported on this person as kind of a colleague of theirs would be julian assange and the reason that i bring him up is that julian assange who ran wikileaks is currently, as we record this, in Belmarsh Prison in UK, specifically so that he can be extradited to the United States to face Espionage Act charges related to the 2010 wiki leaking of the documents supplied by Chelsea Manning pertaining to the military. The reason that I sort of bring him up in the context of this long conversation that we had about journalism is that people have been having a debate sort of defining him out of journalism. It was actually the Obama administration that even as they prosecuted Chelsea Manning, and even as they actually sought the death penalty against her originally, although Obama in his final days sort of sent a message the opposite direction by commuting her sentence, the Obama administration determined that the prosecution of Julian Assange for sort of receiving and publishing the documents that Chelsea Manning did not have the legal right to leak, that if they prosecuted him for that, they would effectively be jeopardizing press rights because it is not considered illegal to take documents even that were illegally distributed in the first place, taken away from where they came from, right? Classified documents, someone leaked them, you know, the media publishes them, that they felt that if they prosecuted Assange for that, that it would jeopardize press freedom. And indeed, it is a very normal element of journalism to publish things or publish about things that were leaked in the first place. I could even apply this in my own day-to-day life. Earlier this year, there were hackers who broke into 
the DC police department's infrastructure or something. And basically they threatened DC's police by saying that if they didn't receive some amount of Bitcoin or something, they were going to start releasing documents. And so they released these leaked documents uh, to the public. And I actually found my name in two of them. There were two documents where between January 6th and January 20th, so this is the time period right leading up to the inauguration, there were two documents that cited my work. These were um, confidential policing documents where they were basically saying assessing the threat for January 20th. And they basically quoted that I had been in, I was in Ohio and then Virginia on the 17th and 18th. And I had filmed the Boogaloo movement, right? Armed libertarian activists who uh, had gained a lot of attention because of January 6th. Even though they weren't at January 6th, they were holding rallies at state capitals only nine days later. And it sort of freaked out the media a little bit, right? That maybe the storming of the Capitol could happen again, that kind of thing. And so when I was at those events, I asked them sort of about the inauguration. And basically all of them were like, no, we don't care about that. And so that, you know, my name, my journalism ended up in a confidential document that ended up being leaked. And of course, whoever did that leaking, whoever hacked, you know, the MPD was committing a crime, inarguably. But once they put it out there to the public, once it was just on the internet, me taking those documents and posting them on Twitter and saying, hey, look, the MPD, (laughs) you know, had something to say about my coverage. That wasn't a criminal act. Inarguably, that's supposed to be something that's protected. And Under the precedent that would be set if Julian Assange is extradited to the United States, a country that he's never been a party, he's never been a citizen here, right? These are laws that they're trying to apply toward a publisher who was in another country. If he gets extradited to the United States uh, and then is indeed convicted of those crimes, it would set a precedent that would jeopardize completely normal activity of journalists. So I would say that something that's alarmed me is that a lot of the media seems to be hesitant to describe him sort of in the terms that I just described. I've been pleasantly surprised when I've seen guys like Tucker Carlson and like Rachel Maddow actually describe that kind of precedent. But when I've looked at uh, things like the Committee to Protect Journalists, when they do their annual list of detained journalists, like they don't include Julian Assange in that. And so I would just say I'd uh, remember who he is, but specifically why he is being charged, right? People can believe that he's a bad guy for one reason or another. And I wouldn't even consider it really my place to um, you know, argue for or against him as a person or his actions. But in terms of the legality of his actions, the reason that he is being prosecuted has huge implications for press freedom. Thank you for listening to Where We Go Next. I am so grateful to the guests who joined us over those first 45 episodes, who shared their knowledge, time, and empathy. And I am grateful to you for supporting the show. So wherever we go next, I certainly hope you'll be there too.